Hi, and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. So it is now officially the month of December, which I I allow in my brain for there to now be Christmas things. I am one of those people that's like, you cannot put Christmas out until December 1st. I really dislike that everything, like Christmas trees were up a week before Thanksgiving in like public (sighs) places. And I was like, can we just not be thankful for a minute before we're led into (laughs) consumerism? Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't begrudge anybody else for loving Christmas. Like if you love Christmas... That's fantastic. But isn't a month enough time for you to love Christmas? Like, because I love Thanksgiving and I feel like everyone's encroaching on my Thanksgiving. I do too. And I hate, I hate that they're like, oh, we're open on Thanksgiving Day starting at 2 p.m. It's like, dude, don't your employees want to go celebrate Thanksgiving with their families? That, I mean, the whole consumerism thing of like just Black Friday, Cyber Monday is just kind of icky at this point. And again, that's not what this season is about. The season's supposed to be about thankfulness, family, and fun. And now we're moving into the next holiday season, which is also about family and fun Mm -hmm. and connections. And in that spirit, we read a book about the Christmas season today. We did read a book about the Christmas season today. We're going full holiday now. It's December. It is. So we are here for it. So Kelsey, of course, I have a question for you today. And that would be, in the spirit, what is your favorite part of the Christmas season? I had to think about this for a second. And I think my favorite part of the Christmas season is there's just something about the atmosphere of it. And I love that it's not just in one corner, like everyone goes all out. Mm-hmm. Like you walk down the streets and there's, I like the twinkly lights. I like that everyone's done a little something, you know, like the stores are all pretty, the outside's all pretty. And there is something about it as I've gotten older where as much as I don't want to see it before Thanksgiving, <laughs> once I'm into December and getting closer to Christmas, I start to feel a little bit more Christmassy, and then I want to listen to Christmas music. Ooh. Because I'm not one of those people that starts playing it super early, because eventually I get bored with it, and I don't want to listen to it. Yes. But I remember last year, because I feel like the last few seasons, Christmas, I've just been working so much that Christmas just kind of comes, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh man, now it's Christmas. Gotcha. And now I'm starting to like look around, and it's like, okay, like, feeling a little Christmassy. Like, let's listen to a little Christmas music. Like, I like putting up some sort of decoration. And these are things I'm doing for me, not for anyone else. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Because as I've gotten older, I've become more of a Scrooge. And Mm -hmm. it didn't help that Kelsey and I both worked together for a little while. And so the lady that we worked for loved Christmas. And the day after Thanksgiving, Every year, she would put on Sirius XM Holly radio station and just blast the Christmas tunes. And it just was all day, every day, six days a week. (laughs) (laughs) And it just kind of like helped, I think, get me into that Scrooge mode because unfortunately, Sirius XM Holly has about 62 songs that they play on loop. So Mm -hmm. like during the day, I would hear the Christmas song Dominic the Donkey at least four times. And if you have not heard Dominic the Donkey, you should definitely check it out. It's okay. I actually kind of love it because it's the most ridiculous song I've ever heard. Uh, It's about the Italian Christmas donkey named Dominic. So Mm. (laughs) I don't know the song, but I also know that a couple years ago, I discovered I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And it's now my favorite Christmas song because it's so stupid. And I love it. (laughs) I see. I think that is my favorite part of the Christmas season is the silly Christmas songs. I love silly Christmas songs. And I grew up with my dad sharing Dr. Demento's Christmas album with me ever since we were little. And so when we would decorate the tree, we would listen to that. And that does include I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, as well as 
as Alan Sherman's 12 Days of Christmas, which is, you know, instead of a partridge in a pear tree, it's a Japanese transistor radio. I didn't even know what a transistor radio <laughs> was. I'm not sure. I, I'm still not sure that I know what a transistor radio is. But <laughs> I loved those silly Christmas songs. And I think that like that part of the season, the kind of silliness, the kind of kitschiness, that's what I love about it. When you kind of embrace the sparkly lights and the twinkliness and you just say, mm-hmm. you know what, we're going over the top for this. And yeah, that mood of kind of infectious joy and joy for joy is is really cool. Yeah, I think as an older couple, especially like now being married and like starting our own kind of Christmas things together, like we're embracing the silliness of it. Mm -hmm. John, being from South Africa, where Christmas is a little bit less of a deal, Mm -hmm. you know, a big deal, but a little bit less than in America. He's fully embraced the ugly sweaters. Oh, and he has like a whole collection that he adds new ones to. And now he's really excited because he now has one for every work day leading up to Christmas in December. Wow. He is a champion. That is exciting. Yeah. Well, let's get into the book we're talking about today, which is Once Upon a Christmas Eve by Elizabeth Hoyt. And this is the first book we've read by Elizabeth Hoyt. And it may be a little while longer till we read another one by her, simply because technically she's not writing in the Regency period, at least in this series, because there's wigs in this one. (laughs) Oh man, it threw me for a loop when I read the wig part. I was like, no. I know. And yeah, we'll talk We'll talk more about wigs at the end uh, in our book recap. But this is part of the Maiden Lane series, which is a very long series. So long, in fact, that this is book 10.7 because she already had a 10.5 novella when she went back and decided to write this one. So I do have a quick (laughs) author fact for us since this is the first time we're reading about her. So Elizabeth Hoyt has published over 26 books since 2006, which is an average of two books per year. And that does include the 15 works that are in her Maiden Lane series, which this novella is part of, which I know that seems like a lot of books, right? It does. It's a lot of books. Bridgerton's is eight. You know, Penny Royal Green is 11. Here we've got Maiden Lane, which is 15. But I love the Maiden Lane series. <laughs> I really do. I only read a book out of it, and it was a it was a miss for me, so I haven't read the rest of them. Well, now you've read two, so unless Excellent. this is the miss for you, I don't. <laughs> no, uh, well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I really liked this little section from her bio. So. She wrote about how she had a lot of small jobs over her career, but when her youngest had entered kindergarten, her mother had made some not-so-subtle hints that maybe it was time for Elizabeth to get a, quote, real job. And so from here, her bio reads... Sadly, Elizabeth was so delusional that she thought writing a romance novel might qualify as a real job. But five years later, to everyone's surprise, she actually sold that romance novel, The Raven Prince, and began a rather successful career as a romance novelist. This was most fortunate since Elizabeth is singularly unqualified to do anything else but make up stories. Since then, Elizabeth has written over 20 books to critical acclaim, including contemporaries under the pen name Julia Harper. So if you have read some Julia Harper books. That's the same author we're talking about today. Awesome. Well, good for her. And who needs a real job? Yes. I mean, if I could have a real job as a romance novelist, I think that would be fabulous. Yeah. I have a history fact for us because this is Christmas. And so Christmas has tons of history. And so I couldn't resist to put some in. So here we go. Christmas was banned under Oliver Cromwell in 1664. And it was reinstated with Charles II when he came back to restore the English crown. But it really wasn't a popular holiday until the Georgian period, which started in 1714. This book takes place in 1741. So this kind of makes Christmas a full thing across a couple generations. So now people are rebuilding those Christmas traditions that were popular you know, a century before. So decorating for Christmas was something that all households did, regardless of class. Poor houses decorated, rich houses decorated. And a lot of this included just gathering evergreens and holly because that's what was in season in England. But it was bad luck to bring it in before Christmas Eve. So I'm only pointing this out 
because our book is a little off on that one because they definitely bring it in before Christmas Eve. Wow. Like it was bad luck to even bring it into the house, not just to put it up, but to bring it into the house. So I don't know if they stored it outside until Christmas Eve, but I'm just saying. Well, you know what? I'm okay with it. I'll give it to her for this book. But I think that's really interesting. It's so crazy how many little historical details there are. And yeah, I mean, if we want to get nitpicky, right? Like, when do they bathe? <laughs> how many True. How many STIs do they have? And we, true. And Kelsey and I are not nitpicky. We just no, think it's not. really interesting and fascinating when you do find a history fact that you wouldn't have known or thought about or and probably still don't care about within the book. But it's like, huh, I never knew that. That's so cool. No. And I think that for me, it was like, always something because my family always decorated really late for Christmas Mm -hmm. and it sucks now because a lot of families used to just purely decorate on Christmas Eve and then like they would keep it up through 12th night you know through like the actual religious Christmas season and it's you can't even do that now by Christmas Eve all the tree shops have closed Mm -hmm. and you can't get one so you have to you know do everything beforehand so it's just not as fun but that's another discussion for another time we want (laughs) to talk about this book And its main tropes. What are they, Zoe? So we have an instant attraction between these two. We've also got the rake and the spinster, uh, the virginal spinster. And Mm. we've got, of course, a secret trauma, a secret pain. And, oh, no, they're caught in a snowstorm. (laughs) You know, the carriage broke down in a snowstorm. (laughs) Our main characters today are Adam Rutledge, Viscount d'Arc, and Sarah St. John. Now, I'm going to give just a very brief moment here about these characters as they relate to the series, because Kelsey hasn't really read this series. Nope. So I haven't read the series in a little while, and I remember Godric's book, and Godric is Sarah St. John's brother, and he has a very small role, as does his wife in this book. And it's really funny because... (laughs) his book is a whopper. So um, I just think it's really interesting. And Adam Rutledge, our Viscount here, does make an appearance in that book where he flirts shamelessly with Godric's wife and makes a really bad impression. But we also get him throughout some of the other books too. And he's just known as this absolutely flamboyant, silver-tongued rake. He can just compliment anybody with everything, and he's very sincere about it. It's not like he's not seen as kind of lecherous. He just, he's a a rake that everyone kind of titters about, you know? So I think that's interesting because I don't, I don't know. I'm interested to see as we get to the end of this discussion, kind of me having context about him and you not having context about these characters and and what our feelings are at the end. Okay. Sounds good. Shall we get into it? We shall. Adam's carriage was broken down in a snowstorm. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) And unfortunately, his grandmother, who has already had a very bad cough before they set out on this journey, is inside the carriage with her equally aged servant. So Adam takes one of the carriage horses off and rides because they believe they saw light, you know, only a couple miles back. So he should be able to get there in a short amount of time on the horse and be able to bring someone back to help his grandma because his grandma will freeze to death if she has to stay in the carriage for too long. I have found this very interesting only because as a horse person, carriage horses are not trained the same way as riding horses. And she does note that he took a little time to get the horse going, which makes a lot of sense (laughs) if you know anything about horses and their training. (laughs) Yes, I appreciated that too, very much. And and I think it's of note that immediately from the beginning of this book, you can tell that Adam and his grandmother have a really special relationship. They're very close, mm-hmm. and he's quite doting upon her. And there's there's real love between the two of them. Absolutely. And that will play a part later. <laughs> but luckily, there was a manor house that they passed because Adam rode up to it. They just saw light, so they knew they passed some sort of civilization in the snow. But turns out it was a manor house, which is great. And he goes up and knocks on the door uh, to find Godric St. John, who dislikes Adam for flirting with his wife in, I'm assuming, their previous book, which you just talked about. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, and he answers the door. So Adam's a little like, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the St. John family is not nobility, but they're very old and very well respected. So it's a good household to have found randomly on a road. Definitely. And Adam's attempting to tell Godric about his grandma and his carriage, but Godric's kind of inserting himself, assuming what Adam's going to talk about until finally. Margaret St. John, which is Godric's wife. She will be called Megs the rest of the book. She kind of comes on the scene, and a minute later, Sarah St. John also arrives on the scene. And Adam still hasn't mentioned his grandmother yet. He's trying. Yeah. But there's just a lot of talk happening back and forth, so he hasn't been able to spit it out. Yeah. It's a family, and they're kind of all ribbing on each other, and Adam cannot get the words he needs out yet. (laughs) No. And the thing he does talk about when he sees Sarah is he noticed her instant dislike of him right away. But he, on the other hand, had an instant attraction to her, whether it's because of her dislike of him or simply because of her. He goes on to state, Sarah St. John should have been utterly forgettable. He'd met the lady only once and that fleetingly. Yet he remembered her for two reasons. The first was that Miss St. John had made it plain she hated him on sight, an occurrence unique in Adam's experience. The second was that on that occasion, he'd found himself immediately and overwhelmingly attracted to Miss St. John, or to put it another way, he wanted her. Ooh. So finally, though, Adam does get the information out about his grandmother, Lady Wimple, and Godric changes his tune immediately, gets very businesslike, and dispatches a carriage to go get her. And I think he and Adam go actually with the carriage. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, he rides out himself as, as a good host and, and a good gentleman to help get her back to the house safely. And so they are invited to stay at the house, of course, that night. And once they do return to the house with his grandmother, it is obvious that she is unwell. But luckily, there is a Dr. Manning in the house party because this isn't just the family at their house for Christmas. This is a whole Christmas house party. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Manning is more than happy to take a look at Lady Wimple. Yes. While Dr. Manning is examining Lady Wimple, Adam is outside the room with Sarah. And this is her first fleeting moment, seeing Adam as a human and not just a rake that she's immediately been like, Ugh, he's just, I can't stand him. Because when they leave the room, she sees genuine concern on Adam's face for his grandmother. And so that's kind of his first humanizing moment for her. And this unnerves Sarah. So she mentions there's tea and brandy in the sitting room and they should go get some while they wait. And while they head towards there, Adam is trying to get a rise out of Sarah because that's what he does. And like any boy who has a crush, he's like, let me see if I can tease her. And she starts responding, but also is flustered by her own response. So she takes a bad step and actually almost falls down the stairs. But Adam luckily catches her, but he catches her and pulls her close to his chest. And that's like now tingly awareness on both ends. And Adam has kind of an internal moment where we as the reader see a little crack in his shell and facade too, where he kind of has a flash of like, there wasn't blood at the bottom of the stair this time. Yes. So he also has some sort of secret trauma in his past. So after the stair incident, they break apart and they arrive in the sitting room where Sarah introduces Adam to the rest of the guests that are gathered for their little house party before Christmas. There's Clara St. John, Charlotte and Jane St. John, which are Sarah's younger sisters, as well as a Lord Kirby, who is a baron that's somehow related to the family in some capacity, and (laughs) Sir Hilary Weber, who's just a neighbor come to spend Christmas. And they're socializing, and then Dr. Manning comes back to tell Adam that his grandmother is suffering from pleurisy, which I looked up because I wasn't sure what that was. (laughs) And it basically boils down to like pain in the chest. It causes pain while breathing and it's associated with pneumonia and other chest abdomen diseases, you know, colds, things like that. So basically they didn't know how to diagnose anything very specifically. And so pleurisy, I think, just meant something to do with chest and breathing. Not good. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's not quite pneumonia yet, but like, could be. Was this the time of the humors? Were we still talking humors in the 1700s? 
There, I believe we were. I think that, to be fair, I think the humors lasted until, like, into the 19th century. Oh, man. <laughs> but basically, it means that they're not going anywhere because Dr. Manning says that, really, Lady Wimple should not be moved for at least two weeks, which puts them in the St. John household through Christmas. But also is, like, one of the best medical decisions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, Ever in the 1700s, I think. Like, yeah, just don't move this lady in the cold. That was really smart. Not like yeah. we need to express her, you know, something or. Yeah, we don't need to bleed her or like give weird sage things. It's like, let her rest and like be bedridden for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, great, actual great medical advice. <laughs> All right. Then Clara St. John, upon hearing this, absolutely invites Adam and his grandmother to stay with them through the Christmas festivities. They're going to have a Christmas ball. And Adam thinks, whoa, because (laughs) as he has mentioned, he does not like Christmas. So he's not thrilled to spend it with a family so obviously interested in Christmas. And so Sarah, we've learned through her inner dialogue, really doesn't like rakes. So it's not just that she doesn't like Adam, but she really doesn't like rakes. We don't know why, but I mean, there's like plenty of good reasons to not like rakes. Absolutely. So she's very suspicious of Adam. She's never liked him like he realized uh, from the first moment that they met. And she's kind of non-receptive to him. So she wakes up the next morning and hears his voice crooning, sweetheart and then like murmuring some other words and she is just incensed. And so she rounds the corner in an outrage only to find Adam bent over a dog who is shamelessly demanding belly scratches. Oh, yes. (laughs) Naga was like, yes, please, sir, you can scratch my belly. Yeah. And so Sarah, again, is like surprised because this is not just Adam the rake. This is Adam the human being who scratches dogs' bellies and tells them how beautiful they are. (laughs) You can't can't see it, but right now my dog is getting chin scratches because she's demanding them. (laughs) Yay. Anyway... This is another moment of humanization for Sarah to see Adam like this. And she also notices when Adam kind of gets up, she notices like a veil kind of comes over him. She can see it in his face where he's open and the dog and he's saying sweet nothings to the dog while he's giving belly scratches. And then he kind of sees her, talks to her and this like social veil kind of like comes over his face. So she's like, oh, there's a different person under there. Yeah. But they head into breakfast, and Adam quickly confirms that all the men that are at this house party are bachelors. What? (laughs) What? With a house with three unmarried ladies? Who would think? (laughs) (laughs) And so he leans over, because he has made a point to sit next to Sarah, and he leans over to her and whispers... Are you on the hunt for a husband? Uh-oh. <laughs> and she's like, dude, we're not talking about this here. But he keeps talking about it and, in fact, offers to help her on this hunt. Not that he's nominating himself as a groom, so she shouldn't worry about that. But he can help her narrow down her choices in the room. And she's just super flustered and is like, why? What do you know? Go away. Like, she's just outraged a bit over his, his audacity to even suggest such a thing. And her response is really dry because she has no wish for Adam to insert himself into her life like that. Not at all. No, but he does get out of her that she does wish for a husband and a family, but it's not his place to do anything about that. So F off. (laughs) (laughs) But the conversation is interrupted by Sarah's mother, who asks the young people to go gather Holly for the Christmas ball. So the younger St. John sisters think that this is an awesome opportunity to create a game. And Adam, the rake that he has, suggests that the prize for winning would be to steal a kiss from someone of your choosing. And <laughs> surprisingly, and I'll, I'll agree with surprisingly, the mom agrees, but only if the kiss is done in front of everyone, so not to ruin any reputations. I will say, though, we were not quite in the super prudish Victorian era yet. All right. We had a slightly more freedom. <laughs> okay. That that is cool and makes sense. And honestly, like, yes, all the Christmas kisses. I <laughs> Yes. I, I love it. So 
everyone pairs up and Sarah and Adam are, of course, the last two. So they are paired together for this holly hunt. And while Sarah's terrified about this, this really does give our two characters a chance to talk. So, of course, they trade some barbs. And then Sarah continues to see Adam as more than a rake. And she was already heading that direction with all of her thoughts before. But really, on this holly hunt, she kind of gets a lot more information about him and realizes that that facade she was noticing, yes, it's absolutely there. And there is another person underneath that facade because he tells her about his love of reading and how he dislikes Christmas. And the reason for that, kind of on top of all the other reasons, is that his parents actually both fell down the stairs during a fight and died on Christmas Eve. Which is his talk about no blood Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the stairs this time. And Sarah, as she quoted, couldn't feel sympathy for this man. She couldn't. And yet, staring at him standing in the crystalline snow, the flakes blowing against reddened cheeks, his eyes unable to hide his sadness, she felt herself fall headlong. He wasn't just a rake. He was a man. A man with feelings. Well hidden, but they're all the same. Aw. I know. <sighs> but this whole conversation really, as we mentioned, solidifies Adam as a person to Sarah. And it's kind of softened Sarah and Adam sees her kind of get her softeny, wispy eyes, you know, and he tells her that she should not show her soft heart lest someone break it. To which she replies, what makes you think someone hasn't already? And that throws Adam for a loop because he thought she was just some wallflower spinster who hated men. Yeah, but now obviously we all know that something happened. And then some snow falls on Sarah and Adam laughs. So then she throws snow at him. And so they're kind of chucking snow at each other. And there's an almost kiss, but it's interrupted. And that's kind of both of them were like, whoa, what was happening there? (laughs) And they also, with all this conversing and almost kissing, they did a terrible job collecting Holly. So they come in last. Terrible job. (laughs) Terrible job. And Sarah's sister... Charlotte comes in first, so she decides to kiss Lord Kirby, but she does it with kind of like a sly look to Dr. Manning. I don't know what's happening in these books. I don't know these characters. Anyway. Yeah, I I actually like, I don't think they have a book. I don't think, I I don't know what's going on there. I don't remember any of that. So I'm very confused too. But I think we just as readers are supposed to know that there's like, she, she's, there's something else going on at this house Yeah, there's a... Like, it wasn't interest in Lord Kirby that gives him the kiss. It was something flirtatious on a different end Mm. or something. And then her partner was Sir Hillary, and he gives his kiss to Sarah. And Adam finds himself very jealous of this kiss. And so as soon as everyone disperses, he finds a reason to snag Sarah and pull her into a closet. So he's like, I can give you a proper kiss. Mm. And she's like, whoa. And she (laughs) enjoys the kissing, and they both get into the heat of the moment, and they're both reciprocating, but it starts to go a little farther, and this is where Sarah throws up her shields and tells him to stop. So he does, and then they proceed to avoid each other for a couple days. Yeah, Adam is just like, I can't be around her because he can't trust himself around her. And in these two days, Sarah is also then getting more miffed about Adam's avoidance. And Adam is applauding himself for doing the gentlemanly thing of resisting her because she is this like virginal spinster. And that's not the kind of woman that he goes after because there's just trouble that lies that way. Especially since he's not willing to marry her. Yeah, he's not. He's a rake. He is not the marrying type. And so (sighs) those few days pass. And after dinner one night, Sarah finds Adam in the library and run now, he whispered. She stared at him, refusing to move. Very well, he snarled and took her into his arms. Ugh. The pull was just magnetic. They couldn't resist each other. Yeah. And so this kiss is even more explosive. But then, of course, when he starts reaching under her skirts, Sarah tells him to stop. And since this is the second time she's resisted when things get heated, Adam actually surprises me as a reader, but he decides to make a request of her. So... Instead, he carefully pulled his hand from her skirts and smoothed them down. Then he looked at her and said, I think it's time you told me about him. Ooh, 
And there is a him that she needs to tell him about. So she does, after much hemming and hawing, but he also is like, there's something between us. Like, I want this, and I think you do too, but we can't keep starting and stopping this way. Because obviously there's something happening, so we need to talk about it. Yeah. And she admits that she fell for a man when she was 17. She was at a house party at a friend's house and they'd been flirting. He was much older than her and they'd been flirting back and forth. And she was just like, oh, it's all a Twitter until he tried to force himself on her one day in the garden and they were caught by her friend's mother. And initially the friend's mother believed that the man was at fault and had kind of attacked Sarah in that way. But he said, no, this girl's been throwing herself at me and she's just been teasing me and she's a strumpet of the first order. And the woman believed him and wrote to Sarah's mother to tell her all about this. And this ruined Sarah's reputation. And she retreated from London and eventually made her way back. Her mother however, was wonderful and was like, that bitch doesn't know what's happening. Like, my daughter would never do such a thing. She would not make up this story. And so her family really supported her, but she really didn't go to London much after that. And then even when she was in London, she really found suitors pursued her for things besides marriage. And it really turned her off to the whole thing. And so Sarah, who's now, I think, 26 in this book, or maybe even 28, she's she's yes, on, quite on the shelf, mm-hmm. has really never been able to enjoy herself and be flirtatious because the first moment of flirtatiousness in her very young life led to such a strife. And so she's been closeted behind the shame of these experiences and never been able to truly be herself or act on any feelings that she has because she's so afraid of the shame. And so That is why also the attraction to Adam, who is a rake, has been so shameful to her and been something that she's been trying to hide from because it didn't go well. And she knows what that path leads to, but that's who she's attracted to. This conversation kind of leaves her with a question for Adam, since he is this rake and she knows what rakes want. So she says, what do you want from me? She asks simply, I want you. He fought to keep his voice level, civilized, in every way. In marriage, her words were soft, but held an edge of steel. He stared at her, feeling wild. I don't know. So after that, they break apart, and now Adam is left to do some pondering. Yes, they both have some pondering to do. And there's a moment later, Sarah's with her sister-in-law, Megs, and they are finally having some alone time together and they're kind of chit-chatting and Meg's kind of looks at Sarah and she's like, are you okay? And Sarah's like, wants to say yes, but of course just bursts into tears like we do when there's a lot of feelings running around us and we don't have voice for them. I know I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Meg's kind of gives her a little bit of her assessment, which was Sarah's been keeping men at bay. She hasn't found anyone to marry her or hasn't found any pleasant men because she assumes that all men are out for one thing. And therefore, she puts up shields immediately upon meeting a man and really keeps them at bay. So she doesn't trust them because she doesn't let anyone get close enough to court her to let her really build that trust and that understanding. And this kind of leaves Sarah with a, huh, yeah, kind of moment. And Adam also, at the same time, is having an enlightening conversation with his grandmother, who has kind of heard from him day to day about Sarah and tells him that she does not want to die and leave him alone. So she says, you may have so-called friends that you drink with, ladies you dally with, acquaintances you greet when you see them on the street, but you have no one save myself that you are truly close to. Find someone, please, for me. So sweet grandma. We love her. Love her. 
And after dinner, we get closer to Christmas Eve and they're sitting around the parlor and it is suggested that we play parlor games. Yay! So so they decide to end up playing hide and seek. And Lord Kirby draws the short straw. So he has to find everyone. And Sarah is happy because if it was her sister's, then she would have to be much more clever about her hiding spot because it's their house after all. But she knows of a great cupboard under the stairs. And so that's where she goes to hide. And Adam was watching. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. he couldn't help himself. He follows her into her hiding spot. And in his own words, the reason that he followed her was something broke loose inside him when he walked into that little room and closed them both inside. He didn't care. Not that she was a virgin. Not that she was the daughter of the hostess. Not that she didn't trust him. He needed her like the air he breathed. And while that sounds terrifying and like he could be very well about to do something against her consent, the scene that unfolds is quite consensual because we have encounter number one. And there's some kissing. And then Sarah's after her conversation with Meg, she's kind of allowing herself to go a little further this time. She's not immediately saying no. And he gives her her very first orgasm under the stairs with his very clever fingers. And both he and her are overcome by feelings afterwards. Feelings. Feelings of euphoria and orgasm and his feelings of, oh, my God, that was the best moment of my life. And I didn't even orgasm. Mm-hmm. But they're interrupted by a very loud no. And so they come out from under the stairs and find that Charlotte is being grabbed by Lord Kirby and Adam swoops in and pulls Kirby off and punches him in the nose. And Sarah defends her sister when Lord Kirby says she provoked him because she kissed him after collecting the holly. And then Godric shows up and Godric's gaze went from her to Charlotte and he stilled. Diark? I'm disposing of rubbish, Adam replied, shoving Lord Kirby towards the door. Are you indeed, Godric drawled. Sarah shivered. She'd never heard her brother's voice sound so dangerous. And uh, I'm sorry, but like, if you've read the books and you know what Godric is, oh my God. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. You should read his book. All right. Yes. But... I love this family's supportive nature of each other. And anyway, Sarah goes up with Charlotte to their mother's room while Godric and Diark throw the man out of the house into the snow with very little care and tell his servants, he's out, you gotta leave. But they go up to their mother's room, who had retired for the night when hide-and-seek was the game of choice. Mm-hmm. And they tell her the whole thing, and the family reassures Charlotte that no one will say a bad word about her. Her reputation won't be ruined because the family has weight. But also, Meg says she'll stand up, and Meg's she's from the nobility, so she has some weight, as mm-hmm. well as, like, she outranks Lord Kirby in actuality. So family's going to support Charlotte and they kind of comfort her. And while all the women are in the room comforting Charlotte, Sarah kind of reflects on the events of the evening and that leads her to reflect on Adam. But as they chattered, Sarah thought about Adam, his hands and his mouth and how he stared at her as he did intimate things to her body. She wanted to talk to him to find out if he'd decided what he wanted of her. If tonight had been simply an interlude, Or if it was the beginning of something more. So yeah, Sarah's a little preoccupied at the moment. Yes, she is. So that night, Adam steals into Sarah's bedroom where she's sleeping. He realizes he's being creepy. Don't worry. (laughs) He does realize that. And he's like, oh, I'm in a room. She's sleeping. I'm looking creepy right now. So he decides to go. But then Sarah wakes up from a dream about him. So she wants him to stay. And he says that he wants all of her if he does, and she gladly accepts him into her bed. And we have encounter number two, which is an orgasm by some aura, which left her all a flutter, and some old-fashioned bouncing wow wow <laughs> as well. And Sarah wakes up alone in bed the next morning, but knows that she loves Adam and wishes he had been there when she awoke. She wakes up to the empty bed and knows he did that to protect her, but wishes all the same that she had woken up to have him right there beside her. 
So the day continues as they're preparing for the Christmas ball, and Sarah and her mother are having a conversation, and her mother has invited all these bachelors here to help Sarah hopefully find a husband, and she tells her how much she wishes she would marry because it's just mama's mouth twisted with sorrow. I think life is easier to journey through with a partner. She squeezed Sarah's hands with a husband. I was so happy when I met your father. So... We get to the ball and Adam and Sarah are partnered for a dance and it's an old fashioned dance. So there's not a lot of touching or a lot of talking, but they're trying to do so. And then Adam decides he can't dance any longer and he just pulls Sarah away from the dance. (gasps) The shock of it. And onto the balcony. It's snowing. She's cold and wondering why he brought her out there. No, literally, she's like, it's freezing out. I'm wearing a ball gown. This is not the correct place to be. And why are we out here? Because he looks very, like, not full of purpose, but a little nervous. She's like, what is he doing? And then suddenly he drops onto one knee. Aww. There, on the cold stone of the balcony, and she forgot the temperature. He looked up at her and said, will you do me the honor of marrying me, Sarah St. John? And then, followed by her stunned silence and his brilliant line of, I know this is too soon, but I want to. He stopped and inhaled, closing his eyes. I need to marry you, Sarah. I love you. And it's the most awful thing I've ever felt. (laughs) Um, Please, for God's sake, put me out of my misery and marry me. She couldn't help her lips curving. Yes. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) And then all the ballroom who had seen them leave onto the balcony had all crowded the windows because everyone's a gossip and they all break into applause and they live happily ever after. They sure do. So shall we adjourn to the parlor so we can talk about it some more? We shall. So today is the last day to enter our survey. So many of you have replied, and we are so thrilled and honored that you took the time to give us a little bit of your thoughts about what we're doing here. So we'd love to hear from anybody else who's interested. So when this episode drops, there's another day before I will turn it off for accepting submissions. Uh, Maybe we'll do another one of these in the future too. It's really been helpful. We've gotten some great information from you guys. So we do quite appreciate that. And I am so excited because our bookmarks will be going out in the mail shortly, and we are going to be sending mail all over the world, including to France, to Australia, and to Portugal. So hello to all of our international listeners. That's so fun. Yeah, we're so happy that we have all of you guys. So... We also this month are doing a couple of less episodes than we have been doing, sort of, but we also have two guest appearances. So there is- What, what, what? Right? So there's plenty of content for you guys to listen to from us this month. So on December 4th, which is the day before this episode dropped, I was on an episode of The Cutaways, which is a rom-com movie podcast, and I watched the- um, movie, I guess, uh, Garden State. It is, in fact, a movie. It qualifies to all of the things that make a movie. And, <laughs> and if you'd like my extended thoughts on Garden State, you should tune into The Cutaways. And they're also another frolic podcast. So just kind of spreading that frolic family love. And tomorrow, on December 6th, Kelsey and I can be found on Boobies and Newbies talking about the Christmas novella, The Earl's Christmas Consultant. So head on over to that frolic podcast too. (laughs) You should. I have thoughts. Yes. Very exciting. I can't wait for you guys to hear it all. And if you have an inclusive holiday book recommendation, we would love to hear from you. Let us know through our email, romancepod at gmail.com. And on top of that, we also have a Pinterest now. So if Pinterest is your thing, you can find us at Pinterest.com slash T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. Like everywhere else that you can find us on social media, that is almost always our handle. Try us on Instagram, on Twitter, and at Facebook at those places. 
And if you really want to be in the know, sign up for our email notifications on our website. And our website is romancepod.com. And you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. And finally, we always ask to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us everywhere you find podcasts. And it's been so monumental that you all have been rating and reviewing us. It's like really helpful to help others find us. And on top of that, it's the holiday season. If you feel like telling a friend about us, we would be so honored. All right, Kelsey. So tell me, what were your thoughts about this little novella that we read? I really liked it. I felt there was a very structured beginning, middle, and end. I Mm -hmm. felt like everything really flowed well. I felt like it was a perfect little novel that was just in shortened form. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that you could have written a whole book about it, but it was unnecessary. I agree. And as someone who did read the whole series, I remember Sarah in Godric's book. And she's also like, you kind of, you want something more for her. And I remember Diark, like he just, he has this like silver tongue for giving compliments. And he often has like these very witty moments in his short amounts of time that he's in the books, if I'm remembering Mm -hmm. correctly. And so I remember that when this book was available to read about them, I was really excited that these characters got to have a happily ever after. So that was cool. I also really liked the book. I thought it was good. I thought that there were definitely like a couple places that felt a little bit of a reach. Like the mom was cool with the kiss. You know, if I had Mm -hmm. to be like really, you know, picky about it, I kind of had this moment where I was like, "Eh." but then you know what? Like, it's a holiday novella. Let's have a kiss. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, let's exactly. just have fun with it. And so I thought it's fun. I love the whole pairing up and going on the holly hunt thing and this like mm-hmm. tossing snow at each other. It's so cute and romantic. So I thought this book was also very happy. It did feel to me like it just summed up a little bit fast at the end. I will agree with that. But I I kind of liked the ending because it's a novella. And the thing mm-hmm. is, like I said, it could be a whole book yes. in the sense that then we follow that engagement for a little bit and like some other problem comes into play. But it's not necessary. Yeah, or he goes or he goes back to London and they see each other at a ball later. And there's just more like there's yeah. more, you know what I mean? Like they met at this this Christmas party and it develops over a longer period of time mm-hmm. before he has to marry her. But again, it was a novella. And I think maybe that's that's kind of the problem that we have with yes. novellas is a lot of the time you wish there was just a little bit more. And I think for a novella, it did exactly what you said, an excellent job of having a beginning, a middle, and an end. I felt content at the end of it. But if I have to like be really you know, if I have to talk about it on a podcast, (laughs) then I'm going to be a little bit more pedantic about it. But what did you specifically think about our hero? I really like Adam. I really like him because like, I didn't read I don't I haven't read the series. So I don't know all the other little snippets of him. But he does in this book, you know, he does show his silver tongue for compliments. But I just love You know, he's always himself. He never stops being the rake and suddenly he's a new person because he's like somehow has this revelation. Like he was a rake because it was easier for him and it was fun. So that's just what he did. Well, his parents, his parents were like the ultimate example of a terrible marriage, right? We we learned that, that his parents fought. They both had affairs and his dad was extremely jealous of his mother's affairs and they just fought and yelled at each other and ended up literally fighting so hard they fell down a staircase and died i mean in front of his eight-year-old eyes or whatever it was 13-year-old eyes i think but yeah okay so regardless very impressionable eyes and he he just figured that it was much safer to protect his heart and you know enjoy company but not develop strong relationships so you know that's very it's it's a very kind of sad sad story and so I think that's why also I I like him because yeah. underneath there's a there's this there's a puppy dog there, in there. is <laughs> and he's always very much like it's not like Sarah says no and he pushes it until she really says no it's like the second she's like no stop he's like hands off you know what I mean mm-hmm. which I really like and appreciate 
And I mean, it could have really gone the other way if Sarah had been like, if he had decided not to marry her. And maybe we would have not liked him as much if it had been a longer book where they had sex at the party and then they part ways and it takes him a long time to come around to her. We'd probably be like, oh, the nerve Mm -hmm. of him. But instead, I also liked him. So what would you rate him? I'm going to rate him... I'm going to rate him like an 8.5. Like, I really liked him. No, like, it was a short book. So, like, we didn't get a lot of him, which is why I can't, like, rate him super, super high. But I thought all his actions were great. Like, he... He never was icky, like never was. And even his moment of creepiness of being in the bedroom, even he was like, I really shouldn't be here. What am I doing here? This is wrong. And he tries to leave. (laughs) Yeah. And then he like lays it out on the table like, Sarah, I'm only staying like if we're doing everything because I can't. It's all or nothing. Like, you know, and all of that could also be seen as very creepy. But again, she is consenting 100% all of the way. And it's not like she's 18 and doesn't have an idea. She's already seen this things happen Mm -hmm. to her reputation. She's 28 years old. She's seen a lot more in life. So I don't feel as like about it that I would maybe if she was more naive. And I think too, but even he says like, it's all or nothing right now. But she knows if she says no, he'll leave. Yeah. And it's not like he said all or nothing. We're never going to do anything later. It was just like, if I stay here tonight, like that's what's going to happen because I want you so bad and I can't be in a bed without doing more. And so she kind of understands, but she also understands that at any point, if she says no, he will back off because he's proven he will back off. Yeah, it's funny because I also envision him as like this kind of tousled, curly, blonde hair guy. And maybe, I don't know if it's just Adams in my brain are like blonde. And maybe that's from Penny Royal Green, the um, the vicar Adam is blonde. Or if there's another Adam somewhere in some something that just got into my head about being a blonde. But I don't think he's a blonde. He's not. And first of all, he's bewigged. <laughs> well, they actually say she pulled off his wig and saw his sh- like very dark, short cropped, like, no, it's like black yeah. hair. And it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so there were wigs in this one. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely, it's funny, Zoe, because we were talking about one book that had wigs in it, but I didn't think they were a problem because like one, I don't like envision the people with wigs on all the time. And I assume yeah. that they've just like taken them off or like they're no longer in the picture or they were talking about, it's so nice to see you without a wig, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But in this one, they're actually like, she physically removes it. Like it, it's there. And I'm just <laughs> why? Yeah. This is the historical detail. I'm like, I am so willing to be like, it's the 1700s and wigs don't yeah, exist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So I guess I just have to have my own little dreamscape about that. But it's so weird, like riding through the snow in a wig. Like, I guess it would keep you warm. I Whatever. Know. So besides that wig fact, I would rate him a Okay, so I was originally going to rate him a 7. I'm going to up it to a 7.5 because while I was reading it, I really felt like 7. But but thinking about it more and talking about it more, I have way stronger, like, happy feelings about him. I feel like he's a 7.5. I, I enjoy him, but I don't I don't love him. That's fair. You have more context than I do. Well, but no, no I don't feel like it comes from the okay. context. I'll be honest. I think that it is simply just that, like, I think it's that it factor that I've talked about before where, mm. like – There's just something about like, do I find this person not attractive, but like, do all of their qualities give me that extra point? Uh And to me, I I don't get that extra point. So I I really like him. And I think he deserves a 7.5. There there we go. We're not that far apart. No. And what about Sarah? How do you feel about Sarah? I like Sarah. This is the second Sarah that we've read about. (laughs) (laughs) And she is heads and tails above the old Sarah. I think she is an interesting character, especially for a novella. You know, you get a decent amount of backstory about her brush with this rake at 17 and how much that affected her life. And then on top of that, you get the development of the fact that she realizes she was hiding all this time, that men weren't coming to her for so many years because she was really making herself unavailable Mm -hmm. to them. And I think that's really interesting because she kind of goes like, oh, but I also think it's interesting that she has this kind of, she hates to be attracted to Adam, but she is attracted by that type of man, that kind of dangerous, flirty, Mm -hmm. kind of bold gentleman. That is her type. And that's fair. Like, but it sucks because 
maybe she would have ended up with these kind of blander types, like one of the men that her mom brought to the party for her, because she was hiding herself Mm -hmm. all this time and not allowing any gentleman to approach her. And what a shame that would have been. Absolutely. So I think that there's kind of something cool and feminist about that too, where, where she's realizing, oh, it's okay for me to like that, that I was punished, but I was unfairly Mm -hmm. punished, you know, by society. So I like Sarah. Sarah is a seven to me. Okay. Just a seven. That's fair. I will give her the same rating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think maybe why I rate Adam higher is I felt like Adam really was like the driving force in the novel. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why I could rate him higher because I just felt like I got more from him in the book versus with Sarah. Like I like her. I like that she has strong opinions. I like that she's willing to revise her opinions and she's not just like, you know, he's not chipping away at like a statue. (laughs) She very quickly sees a different side, doesn't want to see another side, but very quickly kind of allows herself to see him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I liked her and I thought that she was a good character. I liked all her stuff, but yeah, Seven wasn't wasn't remarkable. I I agree. So Kelsey, do you have a favorite quote from this book? I do have a favorite quote. All right. Take us away. (laughs) Pretty sure this was in the cupboard. Because he couldn't stop himself from following her inside of it. And he was compelled to be there because he really wanted her. And he knows she's uncomfortable with going further. And he doesn't want to make her feel uncomfortable. He doesn't want to put her into a position she doesn't want to be in. But she's very much consenting. But I just like it because I think it's beautiful. Like, I just really like the feelings that are involved in it. And I like the push and the pull. And the I like the tensiony parts of it. But I just like the honesty about it, too. He broke their kiss and laid his forehead against hers. Make me stop. I can't, she whispered. Then we're doomed, he said in a voice husky and low, for I'm unable to stop myself. I want you, day and night, and all the time in between. I want you. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. So my favorite quote... We kind of talked about it in our recap, but it is when they are looking for Holly and she is finding more things out about him. And he's talking about what they normally do for Christmas, which is go to his grandmother's cousins, I believe, and they don't like each other and they kind of just bicker and it's their, for the old ladies, it's their fun. I'm going to bicker about my year and try to prove myself to be the better cousin Mm -hmm. or whatnot. And Sarah doesn't think that sounds very nice at all. And he says, It isn't. Um, But he says, I generally hide in the library. That old girl has quite a good library. The library, she asked, as if he'd confessed to a taste for keeping newts. I hadn't thought you a reader, my lord. And yet I am quite literate, he replied. Histories and plays, philosophy and the odd scientific tome, even a novel every now and again. Will wonders never cease? (laughs) so i really loved that you know like and yet i am quite literate i loved that line and yet (laughs) i am quite literate (laughs) and i feel like that really sums up him about like how he is just you know such a such a silver-tongued gentleman very funny very witty and yeah i loved him so no i love it and i love it because instead of being one of those self-deprecating heroes he's very much like i surprised you i don't know why that surprises you like it's a very normal thing for people to like it's yes but that's what i mean about like sarah is just finding more human things about him because yes he does just like normal things like reading books (laughs) yes And speaking of them together, so what would you say is the steaminess rating of this book? Um, Steaminess rating is uh, like a a tea, a cup of tea. Not even a hot Hmm. cup of tea. I thought it was pretty hot. Like they, I mean, maybe I just thought it was like a little steamier. They just had a lot of tension and passion between them. Um, but I guess it just felt very quick. Yeah. And I, they did have some, I mean, I will say this though. I did read this book like all in one sitting. So like I yeah. read it very quickly. I was up late reading it because I have this tendency to not be able to fall asleep. So then I'm like, I'm going to read for 20 minutes. That'll like help me fall asleep. And then what happens is like, I don't fall asleep and then I just read a whole book in this case a whole novella Mm -hmm. so but no I thought it was like what's that like (laughs) (laughs) right yeah but no like I thought it was just very I'm gonna say cup of tea like it just 
I think, like okay. you said, it's just too quick. Like, it yeah. had good moments, and I wasn't saying it wasn't steamy. It was, like, just, it was You quick. just drank it so fast because it was the right temperature. There you go. Excellent. All right. <laughs> so what about our feminist recap? How do you feel about this book? I feel like this nudges into supporter range only because when Sarah talks about her situation and this woman bashing her and telling her mother how she conducted herself and she's terrible and London hates her, her mother was like, no, you're wonderful and I love you and this family will stand behind you. And I think that plus all the fact that like he was constantly wanting her permission. He never went further without her permission. All of that. I think it definitely leans into the supporter range. I agree. I think that there's a lot of consent in this book. And even just the fact that there's always consent in every scene. Mm -hmm. Adam is very alpha and he's very like, you know, knows what he wants. And he's very, it could, I think we talked about it, right? Like it could have gotten like a little sketch in a couple of places, but every single time there was a moment of consent. And so Mm -hmm. that made it good. And I I really did feel like there was this kind of, it, it was small because the book was short, but this arc of Sarah realizing that what she was actually attracted to, and it was okay to be attracted to that. And it was just a shame that she had been so shamed for it at a young age. And so it's kind of this arc of a woman realizing what she wants and taking it. So I think it's feminist. I think it's a supporter. Absolutely. And I really like the scene where Sarah, like her sister is kind of put into a very similar situation. And then when the man tries to blame Charlotte, Sarah's there to stand up for her sister and be like, you cannot blame her for you being an ass. Yes, for sure. This book is a supporter. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we get into our final book rating, I just wanted to ask you what you thought about our author here, because this is the first time we've read Elizabeth Hoyt, and I wanted to know what you thought about the prose and the writing style and and all of that. I really like her writing style. Awesome. Like, I really love her writing. and But that's why I had so many quotes in the synopsis was because, like, I had the one favorite that really jumped out at me, but I really yeah. loved all of it. I loved her banter. I loved just the inner dialogue and the way she spoke about it. But that's why I had so many in there, even for this short novella, because I couldn't not include it because it just said it so beautifully that I wasn't even going to try to convey the meaning without it. <laughs> Yeah, I I think she just writes these really beautiful vignettes of scenes uh, that just convey so much in them. The scene with the dog and the rubbing the belly, that Mm -hmm. moves the plot forward so far. And I really wanted to use that as my favorite quote, but it was like four pages long or three pages (laughs) long. And so... And you needed all of the in-betweens, but it it was so great. It's like such a little slice of the book that really you're never going to forget. And that it just instills upon you such a beautiful little moment in your brain. And mm-hmm. that's when you really like fall for these characters. And I think she's really good at that. I think she's a really good writer. And I've read this Maiden Lane series of 15 books twice at least. And wow. I have probably read some of the other books more than more than two times and like individually – And there's something about it. The first time I stumbled upon it, I read it straight through. Mm -hmm. And the second time I started rereading it, I read it straight through again because it's like that the whole damn series. Like (laughs) you just want to keep reading. She's, she's such a page turner and uh you you want to stay up late and you forgive the wigs. (laughs) Yes. And I think and I I really wasn't at the point her writing style wasn't ever what turned me off. I think the first book I read in the series, it wasn't the first book in the series. So I wasn't invested after that book. And then what happened, it was a book club book, which is why it got picked. Do you remember which book it was by chance? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I could look it up, but it was the one is she's like a caretaker. She takes in orphans or something. And then with the, the, the vigilante guy that's running around something. Silver-haired gentleman becomes her husband? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay, that is the first book. It is? Oh, Uh, I didn't like it. But it is my my least favorite in the whole series. Oh, there you go. No, and I think that's what it was. It was just because I just didn't... I didn't like the character. I, like... I didn't yes. really – and for me, characters really make it – like, I can forgive some things if the characters are really good, and I really like yeah. the characters, and I really just didn't like the characters. And so I so, just didn't want to pick up the second book because I wasn't invested in any other characters yet, so I really wasn't interested yeah, in more. <laughs> totally fair. And the the first book, I feel like, is really a setup for the vigilante character, right? It's mm-hmm. the ghost of St. Giles or Giles yeah. 
Do we know if it's Giles or Giles? I always say Giles, but that's just okay. me. And so it's kind of a setup for the fact that there's this this vigilante running around, and I had to know who the vigilante was. Mm. And I did not guess correctly. Oh, <laughs> so there you I'm go. I'm just saying there's a lot to discover in that series. It's really fun. I recommend Maiden Lane. If you're okay with wigs, uh, I, I really do recommend it. And Godric's book is great, but you get so much more out of Godric's book if you have read the series beforehand. Yeah. Um, the only one that I say that maybe you can skip is actually the first one because it does set up kind of the series in the world, but it is it is not my favorite. It's still a great book. I think it's a good book, but it's... Um, It's not my favorite out of all of them. So rather than gush about that, let's wrap up our book here today with our final book rating. All right. Final book rating. I would give this book, I give it like a 7.5 or an 8. Like it was good. Yeah. I thought it was a good Christmas novella. Sometimes Christmas novellas can feel very... um, Forced? Yeah, a little bit forced. Uh, this one had had a fun story, and I really liked it. But it was fun stories. Like, the Christmas was kind of like the elements of it, but it wasn't the focus of the story. Versus I think that sometimes the Christmas novella is Christmas becomes the focus of the story. Mm-hmm. And therefore, like, the rest of the book kind of misses out because they're not giving that devotion to the characters and just the natural progression of yeah. things because they're so, like, Christmassy. Versus yeah. this one was like... Christmas is happening, but really what's happening is this romance between the two characters. Yeah, and and I had a good time. I would give this one a little lower than you. I was going to say a 7 to a 7.5. I thought it was a good book. I just, like, I didn't love it as much as the last novella we read. The, that's fair. Um, I guess we gave that one a 10, I think. Yeah, that's, that one was just <laughs> that fabulous. Was a, that, that one was, was fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> um, but this was really good. I would mm-hmm. I would say 7.5. I can agree on 7.5. I think it's a good book. Uh, got me in the holiday spirit. I love the holly hunt. Mm-hmm. And the characters are really fun to get to know. Yes. And I will say reading this one first definitely set up a bit of my opinion on the next Christmas novella I read, which you guys can hear about on Boobies and Newbies, which we talked about in the parlor, and will be there tomorrow. So if you want to hear about my opinions on this other one that was definitely affected after reading this book, tune in. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, I hope you all tune into that. But we are also reading another holiday book for next episode, which is A Highlander for Hanukkah by Lori Ann Bailey. And this is in a collection of Hanukkah novellas that are not just historical, but they are also contemporary. And believe it or not, this is actually a Regency Hanukkah novel. They are few and far between. I think that there is officially one other Regency Hanukkah novella. I just really (laughs) did want to get a Hanukkah novella in there. And so I have lots of thoughts on it already, and I cannot (laughs) wait to share them with everyone. But that is next week. So thank you for listening and join us next time as we read A Highlander for Hanukkah. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Hey, jingity jing. It's Dominic the donkey. Jingity jing. The Italian Christmas donkey. La, 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 la,